Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 185, Writing Stories from Ancient History, an interview with Jill Eileen Smith, coming to you on Thursday, March 5th, 2020. So Jill and I actually talked a couple of weeks ago, but I wanted to wait until today to put her show out because her brand new book that we're talking about just came out a couple of days ago. I didn't want to tell you about it a couple of weeks ago and have you not be able to go check it out and maybe buy it because it's really good. (laughs) So I also am doing this introduction just a tiny bit early because I am very excited to be at this moment on Thursday flying to London. I'm going to spend a week there going to the London Book Fair, which is very exciting. I've never been. Um, I really want to go to the London Book Fair and the Frankfurt Book Fair just because it's books and it sounds exciting and I'm just excited to go. Um, oh my gosh, I'm going to have like my great tennis shoes on, even if it's cold out, I'm wearing tennis shoes instead of winter boots because I plan on walking and walking and walking the entire expo floor. <laughs> Plus, there'll also be uh, speakers and um, different interesting topics. Plus, very excited. I don't know, possibly, maybe more excited but at least equally excited to be going to Mark Dawson's self-publishing show's first live event. Yay! It's the day before London Book Fair, which totally makes sense. There's going to be a thousand writers listening to um, a lot, probably at least a dozen other writers talking about self-publishing and all sorts of things that I don't know what they're going to talk about yet because it hasn't happened. (laughs) Um, And then because all of us are getting together for that, some wonderful person who already lives in London um, made an arrangement that whoever wants to, and we have, I think, a fairly large group, can go up to, um, I think, Milton Keynes is the name of the town. It's just outside London where Ingram Spark has one of their facilities with the print-on-demand equipment and everything, and we get to take a tour. So that's happening for me tomorrow. I'm so nerdy. I totally cannot wait. There's so many different kinds of things that I have heard about with new technology and printing. I never did get to see an espresso machine, and I don't even know if anybody still uses it anymore, but five years ago, it was the new, brand new in thing, and I never did get to see one, but now I get to at least explore Ingram Ingram Spark and get the tour and totally nerdy thing that I'm excited about. And also, just because I'm a regular human being, just in case you're not as nerdy as me, though if you're listening to a writing podcast, you're at least nerdy in the same ways or some of the same ways. But in a totally normal thing, I'm also excited because while I have never been outside of London, and I've only been to London, I think, for three days once just a couple of months ago, um, a friend of mine moved to York, and I'm going to be able to go see York, too, which I think is going to be a fairly significant train ride. Okay, depends on your idea of how long is long. I think it's a three or four hour train ride. But anyway. Totally excited because I've never been to any of these other places and I get to see my friend and see the English countryside, I guess. York would be considered part of the countryside, maybe. (laughs) People who are listening from England are probably like giving me all sorts of advice in their mind about how I don't know what countryside is or I don't understand how small it really is or I don't know, (laughs) but I'm excited. I'm excited to go see my friend Camilla. So... Yay! Yay for traveling to new places. And the thing about traveling to new places is that you usually get some amazing new idea um, or other ideas, old ideas, kind of come together and do weird things in your mind. And then you get something that's kind of a new version of old ideas. So the nice thing about traveling and doing new things is I really have high expectations of having a lot of new and interesting information going through my mind, which means that I will be mentally exhausted for the entire week and come home and be really glad that it's time for the weekend. 
I hope that you are finding something like that that you can do. Now, if you live someplace where you're like, yeah, I don't have time or money to um, go off someplace, well, think of someplace that you haven't been that you can get to. Um, for instance, um, just within your own city, what's someplace that you've never been to? I sort of can't imagine why I would be interested in maritime stuff, but here in Malma, there's a maritime museum, and I've heard from a couple of different people that it's kind of cool. And I keep thinking, you know what? You have no idea what it's like, Kitty, because you've never been there. <laughs> you should just give it a try. And if it's ridiculous, then you can have, uh, to me, if it's if it's not at all interesting to me, it'll be um, a great character that I can create that's like, uh, I hate museums. Because I can't write that character right now because I kind of do like museums. I didn't know I liked them until I started going to them. But see, that's another thing that you could find. Um, so there is probably something somewhere near where you live that you could get to that you've never been to before. And you could see it from a new perspective, maybe from a new character's perspective. Who knows what could happen? But I highly, strongly encourage, encourage you to go find something that you haven't seen or done Um or like one of my friends was talking about going to an escape room. There's one here in Malma called Sherlock, which apparently is all kinds of Sherlock Holmes style puzzles and stuff. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that sounds so fun. Never done any kind of escape room. Uh, so there's so many things that we could try and just figure out, I don't know, how to work it into a story or a backstory for a character. And that's what I'm always thinking. So whatever you are doing right now as you're listening to the podcast, whatever you're about ready to, to be doing because the weekend's coming, I hope that you are finding a new way to look at it. Um, and in fact, that kind of segues right into talking to Jill because she has taken ancient history and stories written hundreds and thousands of years ago and found new ways to create a story that's really intriguing. And like for me, this book that she wrote that we're talking about, I already know the story. I know how it ends. But the whole way through the book, I'm like, okay, I just have to read. I have to read to the end because I want to know how she gets it to the end. Uh, so there's so many interesting things that we can put in our books and interesting history and even just um, interesting reflections of what our characters think of things. Uh, and they can be what we think of them or the opposite or who knows what. Anything could happen <laughs> because it's in your mind. So I hope that this is uh, not too weird and mostly just encouraging to go find something new that you haven't done or seen and figure out something that you could do with it. In the meantime, here's Jill. Today's guest is Jill Eileen Smith. Jill is the best-selling and award-winning author of biblical fictions of the biblical fiction series, The Wives of King David, Wives of the Patriarchs, and Daughters of the Promised Land, as well as The Heart of a King and the nonfiction book, When Life Doesn't Match Your Dreams. Her research into the lives of biblical women has taken her from the Bible to Israel, and she particularly enjoys learning how women lived in Old Testament times. Jill lives with her family in Southeast Michigan. Welcome, Jill. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you're here. I'm a Michigan girl, too, so it's always fun having Michigan people on my show. Oh, I know. I can't, I can't fathom the fact that you're in Sweden, and, and I'm here, and yeah. it's, it's so weird. But. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, for, for, for anyone who's watching on YouTube, we can show them where we live on our handy map, right? <laughs> right. Right. Wait, one, one's Israel, one's Michigan. So. Oh, really? Can you <laughs> yeah. do Israel on your hand? Yeah. Oh, you it's can. Like? Let's see. Um, this would be Israel because over here is like um, Egypt and up here would be like the way to Israel. But in Michigan, with the thumb, the, you know, you have the thumb here, you have Detroit here, you have Traverse City over here. Traverse City's so. here. Yep. Wait. Is Way it up at the top here? of the pinky. Yeah. Is it? That's where uh -huh. I live. Okay. <laughs> yeah. You know better than I do even. I've traveled there, but I haven't lived there, so. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and I hear that um, you guys have been getting some snow. It is February. Yes, it always snows this time of year but not much we we've got about oh very little maybe an inch or two on the ground but Traverse oh. City got hit with a lot more I heard but they have yeah. the lakes we don't yeah. have the lakes 
So yeah, I'm just hoping it stops soon. I don't want very much. I think we're only supposed to get about three inches. So oh, that won't be too bad. No, we've had a really mild winter, surprisingly, because we usually want to go and leave Michigan in winter. We don't enjoy, you know. Yeah, we were in California last November to see our end in in Oregon to see our family, and they got ten inches of snow where we live here. By the time we got home, it was gone. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm like, I'm so glad we missed that. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just took a train trip up to Stockholm, which is um, maybe not quite. Uh, first of all, I had no idea how long Sweden is. Like really? at some point, I need to compare the length of it compared to the length of California, which is really? super long. It is. It's it's crazy. So Stockholm is not even quite halfway, but okay. still, it should have had snow. I saw like the teeny tiniest little dusting of snow part way up on the, on the train, you know, on the fields outside. And that was it. Nothing else. I know last year we had polar two polar vortexes. It was so cold. And the last several birthdays we've tromped through snow, like huge mounds of it. You know, one time we went hiking to the cider mill. I love just to take the path, but it was so much snow. I had, I had to turn around and say, I can't do this. So yeah. But this year it's not as bad, thankfully. Although it is snowing out there right now, so. Oh man! Oh, kind of wish I was there just because, but. Mm, no, <laughs> but you I don't, don't have to snow. <laughs> yeah, I don't have to shovel anything here, so. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right. So you have a brand new book that, at the time that listeners hear this episode, just came out two days ago. Yes. Congratulations, Star of Persia. Yeah. I'm, I'm excited. I really am. This one was a book I never, ever thought I'd write. And I don't know, it just changed over time. And it's like I was running out of women to write about. And <laughs> we had this list, then Ravel and I went over the list and they picked the two, uh, Esther and Miriam. And so the reason was I didn't know if I could do it any different than all the Esther versions I'd already read. You know, yeah. she, her story's been done over and over again throughout my lifetime and before, I'm sure. And I had a friend who's a librarian send me a copy of a really old version I'd never read. And, and I read it and I'm like, I could never do better than this, you know, or not that I need to be better than, different yeah. than, as I guess is the right word. And, but years went by and then I thought, well, maybe I can. So it's kind of like, since I'm a Christian, it's always to me a God, you know, putting things in my path. And I fe kind of feel like he, he leads me to the point where I'm finally ready to do something. And we, or if I get stumped on a book that is like so hard, there's nothing on this person in scripture. It's like this much. And, you know, but he always helps me figure out how to make it work. I don't know how I, it's, I, I mean, David was so easy. The first three books I did, yeah. <laughs> how much on him and his wives. I mean, his <laughs> wives are minimal, but on his life, you can really figure that out. But you start, like I got to Rebecca and I nearly cried because it was so hard. And then I got to Deborah and thought, you thought Rebecca was hard? And then I got to Esther and it wasn't so bad, but I just finished the worst book ever. Now, it isn't the worst book ever hardest. to read, I hope, but the hardest one to write. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that one is Miriam? Yeah. Because there's nothing on her either at all. <laughs> oh. I mean, there's like this much. You don't even know if she was married. They never mention oh. a husband or sons or daughters or everything ha that's said about her could be summed up in one paragraph. Oh, man. So, you know, and Deborah at least got two chapters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. So, um, but. So regarding fiction, so mm -hmm. far, everything that you've written in fiction has been historical figures from the Bible, right? Right. Okay. All the Old Testament. So you could actually say the Jew, I, in fact, I spoke to a Jewish group once because it's, it's their Torah that I'm usually, and their prophets and what I, I haven't really gotten into the prophets. It's mostly the Torah I'm working from. So hopefully I'm, I'm keeping true to the way they see it too, except sometimes I don't because their rabbis interpret things in ways I don't see okay. it's the same way because I have the New Testament I also refer to and I might learn something in the new that speaks about something in the old and they don't do that um, 
and well, some of them do. I don't know if they read the New Testament, but you know, typically the commentary from the rabbi will be different than the commentary from, you know, a Christian uh, publication. And so I have to find which one works, you know, like, and maybe I don't use any of them and I just go with what I think fits, you know, so. But sometimes we have disagreements on like who married who and, you know, little things like that. It's not huge. Yeah. So, for all of your stories, you're taking, um, I was reading in your press release, you're taking um, what's written in the Bible and then commentaries. And then also, at least for Esther, you were able to find uh, ancient history documents that cover the same time period and then some of the same people? Yes. Um, first time it happened, because if you look at, well, I didn't really search for it in David's era. And, I'm, and actually in David's era, um, they didn't even want I mean, his, historically, people denied his existence at first until, I mean, there was no evidence in archaeology to prove that there was a Davidic kingdom or Solomon had this huge, you know, reign over all this land until, tell Dan, they found a little, um, I forget how you pronounce it, but a little clay thing that said House of David on it. Um, and that's when they recognized that he was at least a historical figure, but you can't go back and, and like read commentaries from the time on those people. They're not there. And then you go back a thousand years to Abraham and you've gotten even less information, but jump ahead to Esther. Now Xerxes was at known in ancient history as a historical figure and Herodotus, uh, writes about him. Herodotus was Greek, so you can't take everything he says against the Persians as accurate because, you know, there was some conflict there because Xerxes tried to conquer Greece and he didn't win. So I, I had to take his Herodotus's points of view with a little bit of grain of salt, but um, maybe he was biased. But he did name names and he didn't name Esther or Vashti. They don't show up in secular history, but the woman that had uh, Darius II and Artaxerxes and maybe a couple more boys um, by Xerxes was named Amestris. And so when you, and then you look in the Bible and the person who um, succeeded Xerxes was Artaxerxes. He's actually a, a biblical and a historical figure. So I figured, okay, Herodotus has got some um, accuracy going on here. And so Amestris was this real person who's not in Esther's story. And I didn't, some scholars thought, well, is Vashti Amestris? Is Esther Amestris? And I'm like, but her character was not good. She was cruel. I mean, the way Herodotus described her was like, are you kidding me? Really? She did that? I'm like, no, I'm not putting that in the story. But I couldn't, I couldn't see Vashti or Esther in either of that characterization. So I created her character and now we have three women in the story um, instead of just Vashti and Esther. So that I think sets this, my version apart from some of the other uh, stories on Esther that maybe don't add the secular history to the biblical. Yeah. I have to say, first of all, Christian, but never found biblical fiction very interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not really a ancient history kind of person, and I, I usually never could get into it. And the thing is, though, is that I saw the word Esther in your book description. I'm like, yes, I am going to interview this woman and read her <laughs> book because I just like Esther. And not even because, you know, that's the book that, um, you know, we've been in the last 10 or 20 years, you know, really making such a big deal of the, of the one line that her, that her cousin Mordecai says, you know, you might've been put here for just such a time as this. Um, That's not even the reason I like like her. I just like her because she seems like a nice girl that I would be friends (laughs) with. Yeah. (laughs) Seems like a good girl. (laughs) Everybody loved her, you know, even in the palace, it said. So she had to have had a lot of grace and, you know, character and, kindness and you know compassion I can I I'm sure she had her flaws but you know she had a lot of things about her that drew people to her and to 
you know, accept and like her and win Xerxes' heart, of course, but I think that was God's favor on her. But, you know, he wanted her there for such a time as this. Yeah. So, yeah, she was fun. She was, her book in the Bible is a little anticlimactic. So my book does not follow all the way to the very end of the biblical story. Mm-hmm. But um, it's everyone I encourage to go read the biblical part because my, my book's just, you know, fiction. It's fiction. You can't take everything I am going to say in that book as fact. It, I always encourage my readers, put it up side by side against what the biblical account is. And then so you know which one I believe scripture to be true. So then you can throw out my ideas or keep them, whatever you want. Yeah, yeah. Well, and one of the things that I thought was fun about your book, and then, you know, listening to how you um, were able to take uh, a mistress from, um, from the secular fiction, and then Vasti and Esther being as part of the, the biblical story, and put them together, I'm like, oh my gosh, what a gift <laughs> that God's like, here, I'm going to help you make your story even more interesting, because it'll have <laughs> lots more conflict. It was totally believable. Like, I know it's fiction, but I'm reading it just going, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Watch your back. She's going to get you, you know, and I just loved it. There was well, so thank much. You. Yeah. The, the conflict and, um, and the fact that, that Esther was so kind and nice to the, the younger son. Um, mm-hmm. but then, you know, having a mistress be angry that, that her younger son thought yeah. that Esther was nice. And I just thought this is totally normal, believable stuff that I would believe about, you know, people. Well, <laughs> and part of the reason I made, her him like her is because when Artaxerxes did take the throne he was kind to the Jewish people and so you know eventually maybe there was that connection who knows but it it made it more believable to me that if if he met a Jewish queen that was nice to him then he would when he was king be nice to her people you know and he was a good king apparently at the time so yeah all right, so let's talk a little bit about research. I've interviewed lots of people talking to them about um, different uh, areas of history that they've had to, you know, really get into to understand, you know, how their story could fit in with real history and um, when they were making decisions about, well, I'm going to make this slightly different from what really happened because I need it for the story, but I'll let people know, you know, in the afterward or whatever. Um, but what really struck me reading your press release is that if I'm reading it right, from the time that you published your first work of um, biblical fiction, you were publishing about one a year after that. It says nine more books, and I, I did the, I did or eleven more books. Anyway, I did it on my fingers, and I'm like, Mom, but that's a book a year. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, I mean, it seems to me you would have to do so much research to to get the the details right, or maybe I just don't understand that a lot of the time periods are really similar. But then when you and I started talking, you were like, I really should be studying for the next book that I'm writing. So tell us, how in the world do you take ancient history and learn it well enough to put it into a story that makes it feel like Esther feels very smooth and believable and um, it doesn't feel like I'm reading something of history. It's just a great story. Thank you so much. That makes me feel good. (laughs) Um, Honestly, okay. The very first series I did took me 20 years to break into, you know, and I started, I started David back first. It was a co-taught Bible study with a girlfriend on David's life. We got to the, and we went in depth. I mean, if you do Beth Moore's Bible study on David, Mm -hmm. that's how in depth we went. So I really knew him. I, I mean, I had figured a lot out. But then I was like, I want to read a novel about him, and I couldn't find one. And I didn't know how to write, you know. So 20 years was why, because I didn't know how to write. But I also um, studied him for about seven years, on and off while raising kids and all that stuff. So um, I really knew the wives of David. I knew King David. I mean, that was, I knew that everything you could imagine. I, I had studied the cultural atlases, the life in t- biblical times, the commentary after commentary and all these different things. There's just so much on him from first and second Samuel and first Kings and Psalms. And 
Um, even in the New Testament, he's mentioned. And, and so I just knew his whole life really well. I could probably teach a study on him and, and really enjoy it because I loved doing that series. But then you went back a thousand years to Abraham in ancient Mesopotamia, and you were in ancient Israel. So now I don't know anything about ancient Mesopotamia a thousand years earlier. That really made me have to buy a whole bunch of books on ancient Mesopotamia <laughs> and read about their ancient gods. There was this, um, they discovered um, a, I want to say funeral, that's not a, a, a grave filled with all kinds of stuff that taught them or told them so much about the period of that time. So I learned Are you talking that. archaeology? Yes. Uh-huh. So I, I love archaeology. Not that I get into it that much, but when they discover something, it's cool. So I had all that to research so I could set it in a different time. I, the customs weren't that different, but little things mattered. Like you'd be surprised in writing. It's like silly, but when I did, cause I have some contemporary stuff on my computer and you can say a minute later, he, but in ancient history, they didn't measure time by minutes. You have to say a moment later, or did this, could they have had silk fabric? Well, when was the Silk Road invented? And was it the bronze? Did they have iron? Could they use, you know, did they have access to lots of silver and gold? And, and what kind of tools did they have? And just all that is different. Did they live in tents or houses? What their houses look like? How did they cook? What kind of food did they eat? So I did all that with that series. And then I went through to the judges era and that's in between both. And it's kind of like, okay, it's not that much different. So the research was already in my head, wasn't as hard to do. And when I got to Esther, that's when I had to do the Persian, uh, a little bit more understanding of, you know, okay, Israel had been taken captive, they'd been let go, but why did Mordecai stay? Because they could have gone back to Jerusalem and, you know, just so much history transpires during those different eras that it takes just making sure you've got it placed. I, it, it's hard for me, especially if I'm trying to mesh uh, an era of, of ancient history with biblical when the timing isn't certain and God's not telling us. You know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? It's like, like I mentioned to you or before we started the Exodus for my next book, no one knows when exactly that took place. Now, God said it took place 430 years after they entered Egypt, but we don't know what year they entered Egypt for sure. I mean, I've watched a commentary on, uh, you, um, I don't know, Prime TV or something, and it, it was talking about a, a set for an earlier or a later exodus and why which one was better. So it's like, that's the kind of stuff I end up having to piece together. And I nearly drive myself crazy with every book I write. And Every time I start one, I look at my husband and say, why did I sign this contract? I can't do this book. The first draft's going to kill me. And yeah. then I get to the end and then I'm like, okay, I can go on to the next one. So. <laughs> now you also said that um, last year and this year will, will be similar, that you've got um, uh, book releases and then edits for the next book coming really close together. Did I get that right? Yeah, this year... Well, last year I signed a book, a contract to do one standalone book for guideposts. It's, it's a standalone, but it's in a series they're doing, and it's just a, a work for hire. And Ravel said, go for it. But I told my agent, if I ever want to do more than one book a year, just shoot me. Because <laughs> <laughs> I can't, it's so hard, but it was, you know, it was interesting. And it's, that book's due in May. So in March, like I've got Esther, or Star of Persia, is releasing the third, and we're having a Facebook party if anyone wants to come. Oh, I mean, good. It'll be two days later, though, so you'll have missed it. Right. But, no, that's true. <laughs> uh, yeah, oh, well. Anyway, I'm doing a Facebook party, and Ravel gives away prizes, and so then, and they're doing a Goodreads giveaway, but that uh, will have ended by now. And they're doing a pre-order thing, but that will have already ended, so I'm sorry but about that. But the book's that. available today. <laughs> but the book's available, Yes. And um, there could be, you know, sales in the future. You know, they're always running things like that. But um, anyway, um, what was I going to say? Uh, um, oh, so, yeah, after it releases, sometime in March, I'm supposed to be skin edits on 
She Walked Before Us, which is my second nonfiction, which is coming out September 2020. So, and then in May, I turn in the guidepost book and I'll have edits on that, I'm sure a little bit somewhere along the round. And I, in between, I have to start uh, studying who I already know a little because of Rachel and Jacobs and, you know, the whole Rachel story had Joseph in it. But the next book's about Joseph. Oh. And so I already have that study a lot in my head, but I have to form how I'm going to tell the story. And I don't know that yet. Yeah. And that's always the hard part. So now, will that be the first book that's um, where the, the book is about a man? Because you've got wives and daughters and... Well, The Loves of King Solomon was... Okay. The Heart of a King, I mean. I'm sorry. Loves of uh -huh. King Solomon were four ebooks I did when I was also writing one book a year. So they were short. They were easier. So I was doing kind of a book and a half a year for a few years before I took on the nonfiction last year. So it's been almost two books a year for quite a few years. And then yeah. this last year I did the three, which I is, is more than my body can take you know, <laughs> sitting at the computer. But anyway, yeah. um, although I, I'm grateful, I don't mean to sound ungrateful. It's just hard on me. But anyway, um, the loves of King Solomon, they're all eBooks. And I, I do get letters from readers that want them in paperback. And it's like, they're eBooks only. And that's always been the case because they wanted my final to be a compilation of the four. And I, I am, I get bored with repeating the same thing. I didn't want to just mesh it together. I wanted to give Solomon a point of view. And so I switched the whole thing to third person. It had been in, every woman was in first person in the mm -hmm. eBook. I put it all in third. I put his point of view. So the heart of the king is really his story, even though all four women from those eBooks are in it. Ah. So that was the first male lead with the on the cover. There's a man and a woman. And so Joseph is the second male, but they wanted two more women to follow, but they're to be determined. So, okay. but those are, once I get Joseph started and turned in next year, then I'm down to one book a year until I'm out of contract, unless I get another contract. So, yeah. Okay. Now, um, again, reading your press release and the, you had a really good press release. So it gave me okay. lots of, lots of places to, to go with questions. Um, so even though this is, in some ways only your second book that where the, the man is kind of the main character. Um, I believe that you said that in order to get all the information you needed on all of these other women, you kind of had to start with their father, brother, husband, the man in their lives who was written about. Right. Can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, when I did David, I did David. I knew nothing about writing and I wrote a two volume epic on David with all his women, all his escapades, everything. And it, it went to 28 publishers and thankfully nobody wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Um, it was at that point where I met an editor at Harper and Row, who ended up being my editor at Ravel who suggested I do McCall and I turned her down back then when I knew nothing. But later when I finally figured out how to tell stories and had had a lot of years under my belt and then we had biblical fiction finally take a turn to come back because it was out of vogue in the Christian market for a long time. Mm -hmm. It ended in the 80s and I didn't sell till 2007. So, um, but when it came back, it came back with my series. So I was excited uh, about that. But yeah, I had to know David to do his women. Um, I just switched from his point of view all the time to be more about them. And so when it came to like the loves of Solomon, those women, the Queen of Sheba, how much do we know about her? There's some things in, in folklore, Ethiopia and Arabia both claim her. So she was a real person. Um, Abishag was David's last wife that wasn't a wife. Um, let's see, who else do we have? Naama was Solomon's first wife who gave birth to his heir. And then, um, oh yeah, the Egyptian princess, when he marries someone from Egypt who we don't have a name for, she's just a princess and gets a palace of her own and we know nothing else. So what do you do with this? You've got names and you've got 
teensy, teensy, teensy little bit about them. And so you have to understand Solomon if you're going to understand them. And so I already knew David. I knew a little about Solomon. So I studied more about Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and more of Solomon and in Kings. And I mean, I love Ecclesiastes. Silly as that sounds, that book is depressing, but it's also very realistic. And you see him as an older man looking back at his life and thinking how meaningless everything was. And I think it's because he pursued the gift rather than the giver. And so his life ended up feeling very... um, not not worthless but just vain he he wished he'd done it differently and he did he could have you know god loved him from birth and he didn't have to chase a thousand women but he made a lot of foolish i think he thought his wisdom would keep him safe from really upsetting god but it didn't and he learned that in the end so but yes i had to learn about solomon And I had to learn about Xerxes and his battles and some of that with Esther. And I had to, Moses had, had to do a lot about him to do Miriam. And and it's always because the Bible seems patriarchal, but it's not misogenic. Is my saying that word right? Um, I I I actually am not familiar. I mean, I've seen that word and usually just kind of skip over it and go, okay, I'll figure it out in context. But can you tell us (laughs) what does misogenic mean? Uh, well, from what I understand, it, it's not against women. It's oh, not I trying see. to put down women. It sounds like it sometimes because it's got laws that give men more authority. But I mean, there's also so much protection for women for women in the law, and there's also um, Jesus. I mean, when he came, the the people who were paying attention and knew he was going to die, the one uh, the were the women. You know, they were the, followed him along. And I mean, they weren't among his 12 men, but they were right there in that group. They were the ones praying and anointing him. And a woman was the first person who saw him when he rose from the grave. And he elevated women to a high status that we don't, we don't recognize like as much as I think we should, because we, there's no difference between male, female, slave, free, Greek, or Jew, as the Bible puts it, you know, it's, We're all equal in God's eyes. He doesn't love David more than he loves you. He, he just doesn't. You know, he doesn't, he he's, doesn't show favoritism uh, as much as men might. I mean, I have nothing against men. I have three boys. I love men. <laughs> That's why I love the male point of view. I love my husband. I have a male cat. We've had all male cats. It's like, I'm the only girl until I got granddaughters and daughters-in-law. So, um, you know, it's it's just... We need to view, we don't need to force or push our feminism or femininity on the Bible because God already elevates us to a very loving, high, protected, um, I don't even know the right words to say, but you know, we're precious in his eyes. We're daughters of the King if we love him and we can't imagine what he has in store for us. So I love telling the stories about the women, although I didn't used to like writing about women because I had sons, but um, I do now because I hope women out there can see how much God loves them and isn't, isn't against them, isn't out to get them, isn't putting them down, isn't siding with male oppression, isn't none of that. It isn't true, you know, and if you really understand scripture from beginning to end, you'll see that picture, but you have to. I feel like if you're going to write biblical fiction from a truly, if I believe the Bible's true point of view, because not everybody does. Some people just use it as a book of history Mm -hmm. and that's their choice. It's not my choice. And I, but I feel like if I'm going to write about it, I have to understand as best I can the whole of it. I can't just pick and choose what I like. I have to take all of it. And honestly, I don't get it all. I'm listening to Leviticus right now going, Lord, why on earth did you have this have to be the purification for a skin disease? Really? How does that? I don't get this at all. You know, (laughs) and someday maybe he'll explain it to me, but 
I don't understand. I just, and some things I won't, but some things he'll give me this epiphany and I'll go, well, that makes sense. It could be that way. Maybe that's what you meant, you know? Yeah. So you'll not, my dad read the Bible cover to cover every year that I can remember. And you never stop learning something new. And well, the, and I would think that the, the fun part about the last, um, well, I was going to say the last 10 years, that's just the amount of time that you've been publishing, but um, all this time that you've been studying in order to make as, um, as accurate and also um, like just great stories about these people, I would think that the, the more you study anything, honestly. I mean, the more I study neuroscience, the more I'm like, this is so cool. And then I find all these little things where somebody says something in a neuroscience book, then I'm like, I know a Bible verse that says almost that exact same thing in different words, you know? I, I think that's, it must be just really interesting and exciting and fulfilling um, just on a personal level, aside from what you're doing professionally, to just be exploring all of this history in the kind of depth that you would have to to write the books that you write yeah I mean I suppose sometimes I don't I mean I feel like I'll have written books that are already in print and then I'll find something and go oh I probably should have known that before I wrote that book you know you're never gonna get it all it's never yeah. gonna you're never gonna remember everything that's there but like if yeah. you don't know the new when you're writing about the old for instance Abraham and Lot we know about Sodom and Gomorrah. We know God destroyed them. We think we know why based on Genesis, but in Ezekiel, he tells us more. And I just happened to run across that when I wrote that book. But then if you don't know what Peter says about Lot in the New Testament, you have no idea that he was a good man. He was a godly man who didn't like his city, but he was living there anyway. And you're like, why the heck are you living here? <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, this isn't a good place. These men are violent. And, and I mean, violence was a huge, big deal back in that town. And he's like, I, I just don't understand what drew, drew them there, except that even though he didn't like where he was at, maybe he just got so used to it that the culture around him, he didn't, didn't want to make waves. He didn't want to, he didn't want to stand out. And maybe his family liked it better than living in tents. You know, yeah. I don't know, but you wouldn't know about that about Lot and why you would have thought God saved him only because Abraham asked him to, not also that maybe Lot found a little bit of favor in God's eyes because he was, according to Peter, a godly man. But you yeah. have to know all of scripture, at least a little bit. You have to keep going back, keep trying to search it out because it, I feel like if I know a lot of people think the Old Testament, I'll just say this, they think. The stories are just not, they're just stories. They're fiction. Okay. I, I've heard this, these arguments. My take, we know that Jesus was a historical real person who lived. And if he names a person in the New Testament that's named in the old, like Jonah and, and Abraham's mentioned and um, Queen of Sheba, I mean, just to name a few, then if he knew who they were, then they were real. As far as I'm concerned, he confirms their reality. So yeah. you might not find it in archaeology yet, but keep digging. You will someday. Yeah. And from a story perspective, it's really interesting the way that you have taken um, what sometimes is very little and made it totally believable. Like during the, the whole uh, book of Star of Persia, Whenever Mordecai is wondering to himself or whenever Esther is asking him, why didn't we go back to Jerusalem when the other Jews left? Why are we still here? Um, I don't know how much was, you know, me reading between the lines and that's not really what you meant, but you, when you're a reader, it doesn't matter. You're reading and, and making your own guesses about uh, people's motivations and stuff. And, and I was like, oh, here it seems to be like, maybe Mordecai was thinking, well, I've got a good job. So this is the best place for my family. Or maybe here he was thinking Jerusalem is like totally sacked and it would be too much work to take my little, you know, you know, um, small children. You know, I, I shouldn't go now. And when, when the kids are so small, you know, I, I could do it later or like all the time when something was going on and I'd be like, oh, if he's thinking my kids are too small to make that kind of a journey and live in a city that's like in ruins and that we're rebuilding, like I totally get that. Or if he was thinking, 
got a really good job and I can feed all the mouths that I have. Like, I was like, yeah, I can totally see that. And yet on the times when he was like, what was I doing? I, you know, have I disobeyed God? And, and how does that make me feel? I was like, yeah, I can see that too. And it made it just a really enjoyable read because that's the same way that I feel about, you know, Harry Dresden, this wizard that I read about who works with the Chicago police department. It's one of my favorite books, um, <laughs> series, you know, of course, of course I don't really believe in wizards, but whenever he is wondering whether or not he's doing the right or the wrong thing, or he changes his mind later and thinks, oh, that was the wrong thing. I just thought it was the right thing at the time. I'm like, see, the thing that I love about story is that it makes me feel like, oh yeah, all these other people in the world are just like me. Like, I don't know if I'm doing the right thing now, but maybe later I'll be able to figure out whether or not this was a good or bad decision. So I just, I just really enjoyed the way you made it seem so natural that why people might be thinking what they're thinking and how they question their own choices. I'm like, yes, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I'm glad that it worked out. I just, I try to just figure out who the character is a little bit. And when I start, I, I begin by casting characters and I'll get pictures of people as I envision them. And so when I'm writing about them, it's, not so much that I've written out everything. Oh, he's got brown hair and brown eyes and his beard's down to here. I don't do that. But in fact, my, my editor probably wishes I had more descriptions because I just don't. I look at the pictures, you know, and I, I try to think of what their character was like. And it builds as I first draft it. And, you know, I, with Mordecai, I've read versions where it's just her, Hadassah, and Mordecai. That's it. But I'm thinking, but a man in Jewish culture, he would have had a wife. Would he have had other kids? You know, most, I mean, it, maybe not in Persia. Maybe he would have been single, but it just, in the culture of the day, there weren't too many families that didn't have, that you either were in some kind of family, and if you were single, you ended up usually married. I mean, look at Jacob and his two daughters. He made sure Leah got married off as well as, uh, Rachel and much to Jacob's chagrin and unhappiness, but and Rachel's total frustration. But it was still not going to be that you know you you can't not have one daughter unmarried. It, that just wasn't the culture, and it's it, it may still be true in some cultures today. They want to see you know everyone is married and has families, and I mean that's a really big deal. I live in a very ethnic um, neighborhood. And they have huge families. And um, I don't know that, I, I did have a neighbor one time years and years ago. They were, I forget what country they were from, but they, um, they had had an arranged marriage too. So some of that still goes yeah. on. Yeah. I, I, I worked with a girl in uh, Phoenix um, and she and her husband had an arranged marriage from when they were just small children. Uh, wow. Yeah. And I was like, really? <laughs> but I'm looking at them and, I, and we were good enough friends that I was like, so do you love each other? And she's <laughs> laughing. She's like, of course we love each other. You know, we, we grow to know each other and then you like each other and then you love each other. And I'm like, all right, well, that sounds reasonable. <laughs> you know, and then we had a friend whose family's from Hong Kong, I think. And she was saying that um, it's just sometimes it's crazy because her family has certain expectations of she lives in the 21st century for sure like the the kind of job she has and the life that she leads and everything but from a family perspective there are things that she's expected to not do until people ahead of her uh, older than her you know uh older siblings you know do those things first or that she's wow. expected to take care of her younger brother if he needs it, even though she's the responsible one with a job and maybe he's not always, but still it's her job because she's older. And I'm like, wow. <laughs> yeah. I, that's not how our family works, but okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting all the, you know, and um, having moved around to a couple of countries now, it's just, I find people so fascinating. Uh, mm -hmm. You must feel the same way with all the research that you do. People are. Uh, I don't get out enough, I think, to, I wish, I mean, we've traveled a lot in the U.S., um, but we've only been to Israel as far as outside the country and Canada, which really doesn't feel like out of the country. Not if you but, live in Michigan. That's no. how I felt too. <laughs> yeah. 
And, and I would love someday to visit Europe because um, my roots are in Europe and so are my husband's. Um, a mixture, you know, of different countries. Uh, I thought I was more German than I am, but um, I actually got a little more on my dad's side, I think, than um, uh, my mom's. But um, anyway, you know, I'd love to, but I just, I'd love to go to the Mediterranean. I'd love to see a lot of places, but I don't travel well. And, I, and our kids are all on the West Coast, so we tend to travel to see the kids, but I also feel like maybe we'll just go on a few trips by ourselves while we can because we're yeah. not getting any younger so <laughs> yeah. oh anyway. wow but people are interesting and some are difficult some yeah. are you know and those are the ones that i find it hard when god says love everybody you know your neighbor your enemy you know everyone yeah and sometimes it's when you run into the really difficult personalities that want to make life hard that's that's hard to deal with, you know. Some yeah. people you click with and you're your best buds right away. And other people, it's like just a challenge. But I think God grows me when I run into those situations. So Yeah, that's true. That's true. And also, again, when I was reading Star of Persia, <laughs> um, when I was reading about some of the things that Amestris was doing, you know, the, the kind of wicked wife. Um, and, and it's interesting <laughs> now, of course, I'm dying to know, like, what are all the cruel, horrible things that the real <laughs> woman did that you can't put in your book? But um, even the things that she was doing, I, I would sometimes be feeling sorry for her thinking, okay, you were raised as a princess with certain expectations. You married a king and you had certain expectations and you were promised, <clears throat> excuse me, promised certain things, or at least it made it sound to you like these expectations would be fulfilled. And yet um, you're one of, I don't know, but it certainly sounded like dozens, a hundred, a few hundred wives. Uh, you may not ever see your husband unless he just feels like he's in the mood for you. I'm like, okay, how in the world, like you don't get anything you want and you're not even loved. Like at least Esther, the, the way that you wrote her was that maybe she actually was loved by the king, which is at least something for all of the Yeah, and I think he loved Vashti. And Esther at least um, made him feel something, you know, for him yeah. to pick her. Because their age difference had to be big. Yeah. And, but I, unless, I thought about it for one second and I'm like, ew, 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 don't think about it anymore. <laughs> well, you know, what's really weird. If you do the math, um, you won't want, you should do the math sometime. I won't give it all away. But Jacob and Rachel were really far apart. Um, really? I did yeah, not know that. You stop and and added up from the how old he was when he went down to Egypt and how old Esau's got married when he was 40. And Jacob still wasn't even over in oh. the land to, to meet Rachel. So you add it all up and he was pretty old and you go like, that's so weird. That's so weird. Yeah. But we don't understand it because our cultures aren't the same. And, and yeah. they lived a lot longer. So it was very different yeah. back then. But I mean, I was just trying to picture, I'm reading Genesis right now, and I'm trying to picture all these people and like after the flood, how they had to have married their sisters and then had married their cousins and, yeah. you know, and just very strange, long lives. But after the flood, less and less and less, you know, they, they lived. And yeah. at one time, I think the lifespan might have been 120 and then it kind of got down to about 70. And that, that was when, as long as David lived, but Solomon was less than him. So when you, when you read the math, it's, or you, but you got to kind of figure it out. And I, I do those kinds of things too, but <laughs> yeah, I forgot your question. I'm sorry. <laughs> I think we were just, I think it was just being chatty about, uh, yeah, the ages in between people and. Yeah. yeah. Um, very different, very different times, you know, yeah. just, but Yeah. And, and, oh, Xerxes and Amestra, she had asked about her. She, she had, he, they were both kind of cruel in, in a lot of ways. Um, he, one rumor was that he had an affair with his son's wife. Oh, I read that in your book. Yeah. yeah and I'm like, okay, I can't put that in there because I didn't have the son old enough to be married. Yeah. And, and because of that and some other things that said, Amestra did some really, like a murder. 
but I won't tell you how cruel it was. Wow. So she's, she's accused of some pretty bad stuff. And I just thought, no, my readers don't want to read about this. And it yeah. doesn't fit Esther's story anyway. So, yeah. And who but knows you do if have it's true. Things, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I know that with, um, with history, you know, you're usually looking for more than one place to corroborate yeah um but you do have a couple of times when you're like holy cow like you know maybe i've seen this in a movie or something about um you know the ben-hur or something you know but um the how quickly he would just like have someone killed like he gets mad he's sure that they're at fault so he just has them killed today i'm thinking man what if you found out later like tomorrow <laughs> you were wrong well they're yeah. already dead now <laughs> <Crawley>. <laughs> well I, when i have him in, in the story kill some the, the messengers you know in the vashti scene that's my imagination I, there's nothing in scripture that says he did that so and right. there's you know, some people speculate that Vashti was murdered, but there's no evidence that she was. So yeah. I wasn't going to put that in there either. Yeah. So oh, anyway. So many people. Well, listen, we probably should uh, wrap this up, but I wonder if there's time just for a minute that you have just finished your second book of nonfiction as well. And as, as I said before we started recording, I don't get enough people on talking about nonfiction. Can you just tell us a little bit, like, what is the book about and how does it differ in the way that you write that versus the way that you have been writing this, um, you know, ancient history, biblical fiction? Well, both books were, they're not really a series. They didn't, they're both standalones. The one, When Life Doesn't Match Your Dreams, is in the same style as She Walked Before Us, where I do still use biblical fiction as a tool at the start of every chapter. And wow. in the middle of the chapter, I have a short scene so that you can get into the kind of feeling of what that woman might have felt at that time. Like Eve, after she broke the world, you know, on... Yeah. Uh, Noah's wife, you know, she has a point of view. Potiphar's wife has a point of view. I, I bring all those. That was in the last book, uh, When Life. But She Walked Before Us is a more positive, I guess you could say, because When Life, uh, there's certain elements that are memoirish, um, but there's certain that aren't, or some that aren't. But it, it focuses a lot more on um, how hard life can be. And, and gives some hope and verses and things at the end. But this one is more like the original title I had for it was Turning Trials into Triumph. But because um, it was, it's still about the trials because the women still went through them. You know, every, every woman in scripture, they didn't have easy lives. I mean, and some of these women I thought would be easy to write about because they're wives of David. I already had known about them. And they were horribly hard <laughs> because they were, they were um, a Hinoam, whose son raped his sister. They were Mayaka, whose daughter was raped, they, and whose son killed his brother. They were, and well, and Ahinoam's son was also killed for that rape. And, you know, different ones. Abigail, I think, was possibly at least verbally abused because Nabal was a complete fool and worse. The, the definitions for his name are more than just what we think of as a fool. You know, he wasn't just funny fool. He was cruel fool. And so I, and I have not experienced any of that and I didn't know how to do that. So I had to find the right theme to go with it and to show up more positive. I wanted a more positive spin on this book because I wanted to give women more hope. Not that the first one doesn't, but I wanted it to be even more helpful so, because I think that that's really God's the God of hope. And I wanted people to see that even in the Old Testament, he was giving people hope and grace and faith. And so often we miss that there's grace. We think we live in an age of grace because the law, we are not under the Jewish law as Christians, but there was grace just woven throughout every story of the Old Testament too. We just don't look for it. Yeah. And so I tried to pull that out in that book. So we'll, nice. we'll see how it does. <laughs> and when does that one come out? I'm not positive the date exactly, but I think September, 2020. Okay. 
So oh. um, seven, eight months, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. We'll edit, start edits in March and probably, well, I won't be working when I'm um, not, I won't be working part of April, but um, I'll probably have most of the edits done by April at some point. Nice. I don't know when she's going to send it to me. So we'll yeah, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Sometimes they wait three months and then they ask you, can you get that back to us in a week? <laughs> oh, my, my editor's not like that. She's oh, really that's good. She's so good. I, I hope oh. I never have another editor like that. I mean, I've worked with Jessica for every book and I hope she never leaves Ravel because I hope <laughs> as long as I'm with Ravel, I get to keep her. Nice. Editor. Yeah. Well, hello, Jessica. You sound wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Writers want to know that there are great editors out there who aren't going to. (laughs) She always has a good suggestion when I don't word it right. And I just trust her to fix all my commas now. I don't even, you know, I just let her, I don't even bother to question anything on certain things. Um, I do actually have two editors. You first have an acquisitions editor that that gets you the contract and accepts the book and then they turn it off to the editor who goes line by line word by word and corrects whatever is wrong and that's okay. but my i had lonnie hall dupont for all of my career until this year she retired in 2019 and now i have rachel mccray and she's edited my nonfiction or accepted edited my nonfiction, but um Miriam will be um, edited by Lonnie one last time and then everything will go over to Rachel. So it'll be getting, you know, more time to get to meet Rachel. That'll be fun. But I miss Lonnie because, you know, she's cool. She's really great. Nice. And do you have a expected publication date for Miriam? Probably 2021? Uh, Yeah. They're always usually March of the following year. So they're due in March typically and they're also released a year later in March, because it takes them time. They begin asking me for title suggestions and all the things about them in like December, the year before I've even finished the book or turned it in. <laughs> okay. So they work way ahead, you know, and they have to do the cover art and they get it in the catalog comes out early because they want to show it to the buyers. So yeah, it's really complicated. And I have a great marketing team and a publicity team and they just let me write the book and I, I do a little self promotion to help them, you know, like throw out graphics up there and tell people about it as best I can. But man, they do a lot for me and I'm really, really grateful. Yeah. Every time I, um, I talked to someone who's published with Baker Ravel and they happen to mention, you know, some of this uh, details like this. Uh, it's always with the, this feeling that they're very organized. They know what they're doing. They do good work and they make authors be uh, very glad that they are working together. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, they're great teams. We've had a few people come and go, but I mean, they, Michelle, my marketing manager, has been there forever, and I she's great. I've had a few different publicists, and I really love Karen. I hope she stays on for a long time. I don't know her future plans, but, I mean, no one new has ever been bad. You know, they've always yeah. been a good team. So they make wise choices, and I like most all their books that I've read. So, nice. Yeah. I'm grateful. Well, a shout out to Karen and Michelle, who also send me very kind emails about the <laughs> <laughs> interviews that I do with some of their people. So, oh, this is great. It's always fun talking to um, writers that they're doing something that I never would have thought of writing or um, just, it's also really nice to read a book that all the way through, you're like, this is great. This is, this doesn't feel like work to me right now. This, I just need to know what happens next. (laughs) I know the story of Esther. I know what happens next, but I want to know how you're going to say it. (laughs) Yeah. I'm really, really glad you enjoyed it because I can put most books down. I, you know, and so I, when I get a book, I can't put down. That's to me, a book I love. It is. And, you know, so I'm grateful when anyone says that about mine too, because, you know, I'm sure people can put mine down, you know, in, I, I don't, they don't tell me. They probably just (laughs) are the ones that don't write me. Right. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, listen, okay. Star of Persia, brand new. And where Mm -hmm. can listeners find out more about you and all of your books? Well, I have lots of places. I have a website, jilleileensmith.com. 
and on it I blog I try to blog once a week I call it, it's called my journal and you can find all my books listed there under either fiction or nonfiction and if you click the tabs it'll bring up all the books and then it'll have a learn more and bring up all the places you can buy it and there is the Amazon link on all of them is an affiliate link because um, that's the only program I could get into I'd be affiliate with others but you had to meet a certain threshold I couldn't meet so yeah. anyway um, and I haven't checked everyone, but I, the ones I did check, but I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I just go, just search Delilah Smith on everything, okay. Twitter. I, and I really, I post on Instagram. It goes to Facebook. It goes to Twitter, but I'm most active in answering questions on Facebook because people tend to respond there more. Mm -hmm. um, if, if my blog's up, they'll answer me there than on my blog. You know, they don't uh, always respond there. So I'm on Pinterest, but I haven't looked at it in forever. And <laughs> yeah. so I, I, I want to, but I just haven't had time. I, I had made storyboard, you know, for every um, book series or each book, I would make a new Pinterest board, but I just ran out of time for continuing to do that. So maybe yeah. I'll catch up one of these days. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And um, just for, because some people might be running on the treadmill or driving in the car. So Jill, regular spelling, J-I-L-L, Eileen is E-I-L-E-E-N, and Smith, regular spelling with an I, mm -hmm. JillEileenSmith.com. Yes. Yeah. And Jill Eileen Smith on most of the social media then. Right. Yep. Awesome. Yep. I was, a, I was always a Smith and I married a Smith, which is why I use my middle name. So how funny. Yeah. <laughs> my gosh. I mean, that's not as, I'm sure it's not as uncommon as it sounds, but yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. I told you that one of my friends had a arranged marriage in India and her maiden name and her husband's last name were the same. So she didn't change her name when she got yeah. married either. <laughs> no, it was, it was easy. I didn't have to do anything. Right. Yeah. So. <laughs> Oh yeah. Jill, this has been great fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing so much with us. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's been great. It's been fun meeting you too.